Good evening, brothers and sisters. If you would, please go ahead and get a Bible out and turn it to the, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Look over at Mark chapter 4. That's where we're going to begin in just a second. Our entire lesson is going to be from the Gospel of Mark, and so you'll want to familiarize yourself with that. Uh, I'm really thankful to be here. I've got a lot of connections here, like Roger was talking about, and I was making more. Last week, I actually got to go to Indiana Bible Camp. I've been going there for several years. Uh, that's where I met a lot, a lot of young men and had the opportunity to be a counselor there, and uh, I got to meet Napoleon last week. And uh, in my conversation with him on Friday as we were leaving, I said, Napoleon, I'm going to get to see you on Wednesday. I can't wait to see you. I said, I'm coming down for your summer series at Charlestown Road. And Napoleon said, oh, cool, who's speaking? <laughs> I said, I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> and so uh, I am glad to know you all and get to know you all better. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to do so afterwards. Uh, tonight, I want to take Mark's gospel and I want to invite everybody to maybe look at it in a different lens than maybe you haven't looked at it before. Many believe Mark's gospel is more or less scattered, telling a story here, telling a story there, with not much structure, but I disagree. There are many themes in the gospel of Mark that I think are worth our attention, and I think one of the biggest themes in the gospel of Mark is exactly what we're talking about today, where doubts arise and fears dismay. What does someone do whenever they're afraid? That is really a telling question, a really telling answer. And I don't know about you, but when you're going on first dates with people, normally you're asking them, where are you from? And, you know, what do you like to do? Not a lot of people are asking, well, what's your fears and what's your greatest doubts? But I'll tell you what, if they answered you honestly about that, let me tell you, you'd learn a lot about them. Because what we fear and what we doubt shows what's really inside of us. And we're going to walk through some stories tonight and then make some applications and as we go through these stories, I really want to encourage everyone to look at it with that different pair of lenses. I, I just turned 27 earlier this month. I had to go to the eye doctor yesterday. Guess what I found out? I need glasses. <laughs> and when, as soon as they were putting those no lenses on, I, it just occurred to me, I can see more clearly whenever I have these lenses on. And so as we go through some of these stories, you will have heard of them, you'll know what they are. I want you to start looking for this central theme of both fear and doubting as we go through these stories. And then we're going to draw some applications as we go. And there's really three questions I want to encourage you to think about whenever we go through these stories. Number one, what are they afraid of? With whatever situation we're going to be reading about, what is it that is making them scared and afraid? Remember this question. Number two, what are they turning to? In their fear and in their doubt, what are they then turning to to find a piece of comfort? And number three, what are they afraid of at the end of the story? It's often interesting to watch how they go from being afraid of one thing to something completely different at the end. So why don't we go ahead and begin at the end of Mark's, uh, Mark chapter 4 and begin in verse 35. Mark 4 and verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and in the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already becoming swamped. And he was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. And they woke Jesus up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why were you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. 
What are they afraid of in this boat? Well, an obvious answer, right? They're, they're afraid of the storm, but it gets a little bit more specific than that. Whenever you zoom in a little bit more, and they go and they shake Jesus awake, they see, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? They're not just scared of the storm around them. They are scared of death. It is imminent. And for those of you who have been on boats in storms, I've been on Lake Cumberland whenever just a small storm came over the, the boat, the fishing boat I was in. I was terrified. It scared me. And it wasn't even that big of a deal. I could have swam to shore. But let alone on the Sea of Galilee. Not very big. Here comes the storm miles from land. They're afraid of death. Did you see the doubting that the apostles were going through in verse 38 as well? Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? They're doubting Jesus. You don't care, Jesus. And so they turn to fear and to panic. And I would submit to you, they don't really think Jesus can do anything about this. They haven't learned that about Jesus yet. You know how I know that? Because they not only doubt Jesus here, but there's a carbon copy story of this a little bit later where they doubt Jesus at the same time and in the, in the same way. They don't think Jesus can do anything about this. They just invite him. Jesus, wake up and jump into the panic that we're experiencing. And isn't that what we want to do through fears and doubts? We don't necessarily want help, but we want to invite other people to be a part of the panic, the panic that's ensuing. Don't you see what's happening? But what's more fascinating to me in this story is what they're afraid of at the end of it. Because whenever Jesus silenced the storm, the text tells us that in verse 40, He said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this, even the wind and the sea obey him? They're no longer scared of the storm, but they're afraid of Jesus. Because if this storm had all of this power and all of this might, and Jesus is able to calm it with just a few words, then how much power does that say that he has? I don't know what their view of Jesus was up until this point. It wasn't all that clear. I'll tell you that. He's going to have a heart-to-heart -heart with them later in Mark's gospel. But they did not understand he had this kind of power. They went from being afraid of the storm to being afraid of Jesus. Okay, Chase, you've shown me one instance in Mark's gospel where it talks about being afraid or being fearful. Where else can we see this kind of theme? Why don't we continue to walk through and just turn your Bible over to chapter 5, right into the very next story, as I go through the gospel of Mark with non-Christians. This is one of my favorite things to show them. In chapter 5, we're not going to get to take the time to read all 20 verses here, but if you would begin with me as they get to the country of the Gerasenes or Gadarenes, as some of your translation says. In Mark 5 and verse 2, it says, As soon as he got out of the boat, that a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. Now listen, everybody, I want everyone to just focus on how Mark goes out of his way to explain to us how bad off this man is. Mark has the shortest gospel out of the four. One of the themes in Mark's gospel, I believe, is the urgency of the gospel message. That's why he kind of condenses some of his stories. He skips over details because he was just trying to come out and punch through what the gospel message is. But then on this story, I want you to see what he decides to spend time on. In verse 3, he says that this demon-possessed man lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. Let me ask you, is this guy scary? 
Is this someone to be afraid of? I don't like going to cemeteries in the daylight, let alone imagine someone like this existing in the cemetery and amongst the tombs. And then I want you to see what happens in verse 6. Because it tells us that when he sought Jesus from a distance, he ran at Jesus. Now, I don't know if you're one of the disciples, but if I am, when I see that guy running at me, I'm turning around and I'm running the other way. But Jesus holds his ground. And this demon-possessed man, it says, come, came and knelt down before him and cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. Because Jesus had been saying, come out of him, you unclean spirit. You may well know how this story goes. Jesus converses with the demon. One of the scariest stories as I was a kid that I would read through. And, you know, it says, my name is Legion because we are many. So scary to think about. But Jesus ends up permitting these demons to go into this herd of swine and they run off this steep cliff and into the sea and they drown. But I really want us to zero in on how the people responded that are in the country of the Gerasenes or Gadarenes. In verse 14, it says that the men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and the people went to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs, and they began to beg him to leave their region. Okay, so what were they afraid of? Well, they were afraid of that man, the one that no one could subdue, right? Did you see how, how it was just explaining that no one could subdue him? We had the strongest guys come in here and try to bind him up in shackles. No one was able to do it. But it tells us in verse 15, whenever the people come and they find out about what Jesus was able to do, it says that they were afraid of him. Here's what I want to ask you tonight. In the text, who is it saying that these people were afraid of? Is it saying that he, they were afraid of that demon-possessed man? I don't think that's the case. It's just told us that there he was, dressed and clothed and in his right mind. There's nothing to be afraid of him anymore. He's not in the chains and he's clothed. He's got a suit on maybe. I don't know. They're afraid of Jesus. Because the same exact thing that happened in the storm, as they looked out and they just saw how powerful this storm was, if Jesus can contain that, then how much power does that mean Jesus has? A lot. A lot more than what some people know what to do with. They drove Jesus out because they didn't know what to do with someone who had that much power. Let me ask you, do people do that today? Are some people so afraid at the idea of an almighty God like Jesus and the power that he has that instead of submitting to him, they run away from him? Or they shoo him out of his life and say, depart from here? Do people do that today? Absolutely. Here was a legion. People were afraid of it. But by the end of the story, they're afraid of Jesus and usher him out. Well, you move on into chapter 5 a little bit further. And you continue to see this theme. We're going to look at verses 21 through 43 here. We're not going to take the time to read this entire section. 
But where your Bible might split this up into a couple different sections, I would encourage you not to look at it that way. This is one story. This is actually what I call a Mark sandwich, where he'll begin one story, then he'll start another, and then he decides to finish the story, because they all kind of happened in conjunction with one another, okay? And we're introduced to a man named Jairus, or Jairus. He was a synagogue leader in verse 22, and he comes and finds Jesus, and he falls at his feet, And let's look at what his problem is. Let's see what he's afraid of. In verse 23, it says, He begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. If you're a new reader to the Gospel of Mark, this is actually kind of interesting. You you actually see a lot of people coming to Jesus to be healed. Not Jesus just like going off on a mission to go heal somebody, but Jesus decides to go with him. But his daughter is sick. He's afraid of her death. How many of us can relate to that? You ever had a sick kid? Sally, that's our oldest. She's going to be four in December. We've got two girls now, but she had a stomach bug probably six months ago now. And man, I remember, I was just sitting there praying, Lord, just give it to me. When, when you have to help your four-year-old get to the toilet to throw up, that, that's hard. That cuts at you. Let alone having a child that's dying. And by the way, I did end up getting sick, but it wasn't, it wasn't a clean stop for either of us. But you know what I mean? That's something to be afraid of. Sickness is a real thing to be scared of. To be doubtful about. But this man... He started by going to the right source. He turned to Jesus. He went to him. I know you can do something about this. And as the story plays out, it tells us that they're on their way to Jairus' house. And in verse 25, there's a woman who has been suffering from this bleeding problem for 12 years. And I want us to do a similar thing that we did back earlier in chapter 5. The same way that Mark goes out of his way to just tell us how bad off this demon-possessed guy was, I want you to see how Mark does the same thing for this woman. Luke doesn't do it this way, but Mark does. In verse 26, uh, Mark says, She had endured much at the hands of doctors, many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. And having heard about Jesus, she came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, If I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. And instantly her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. This woman, it goes out of its way to tell us how bad it was. I once heard somebody say that Luke had that doctor's discretion, and that's why he didn't go into that detail. But Mark does. And again, how many of us can relate to this? Have you ever had a sickness or had a loved one that had a sickness that was going to as many doctors as they could, spending all that they had? Because you're afraid of what that sickness is going to do to you. She'd been having this problem for 12 years. Well, In verse 30, Jesus realizes that the power had gone out from him, and he turned and looked in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples, of course, laugh. You know, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? This is important, brethren. Look at verse 32. When he was looking around to see who had done this, the woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Where she was afraid of this problem that she had for 12 years, what's she afraid of now? She's fearful of Jesus. 
And we're going to talk about having a healthy fear of Jesus here at the end of the lesson. I think, I think this is a commendable thing, and, and Jesus recognizes that. Go in peace, you've been healed from your affliction. But who's in the story? Who's right there? Jairus is. They were on the way to heal his daughter, remember her? And in verse 35, it says, while he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead, why bother the teacher anymore? That's not the guy that you want having the bedside you know, news delivered. Your daughter's dead. Why bother Jesus? Now, if you're Jairus, how are you feeling now? Are you doubting a little bit? I'd be doubting a lot. Are, are you maybe like, if you were like me, you might be thinking, you know what? If we hadn't slowed down to help this woman, maybe we would have gotten there in enough time to save my daughter. He's doubting. He's afraid. And I want you to watch the way Jesus deals with him. Jesus says in verse 36, when he overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid. Only believe. And he did not let anyone accompany him into the house. He saw a commotion, so forth and so on. Jesus takes in uh, his apostles and he heals the little girl. Or he rises the little girl, girl rather. And in verse 42, she got up and began to walk and it tells us that she was 12 years old as well. Jesus tells him, you do not need to be afraid in this moment. But much like this woman trusted in me, I need you to do the same exact thing. Do not worry about what your little girl has had happen to her. You need to trust in me. And what really just ties these two stories together is that both people had 12 years invested in these problems, didn't they? This woman with the 12 years she had been having this problem and these parents who had had this wonderful little girl for 12 years. Both laid their fears at Jesus' feet and both found relief. Let's move on to the next one. There's also, uh, in chapter 6, um, a story. We won't spend as much time on this one, but it did jump out to me. Mark's Gospel had mentioned to us back in chapter 1 that John had been arrested, but he doesn't tell us how or why or what the details of that were in chapter 1. It's not until chapter 6 that the conversation kind of is ne it necessitates us going back and learning about why John the Baptist died. And as this story is being recounted, you learn a lot of lessons about King Herod, who was the one who had had John arrested because he had told him, you cannot be married to Herodias. This was your brother's wife. This is adulterous. If you want to follow King Jesus, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, you cannot have this wife. And so he's in jail. But in verse 19, it tells us that Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. And here's why in verse 20. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. What was Herod afraid of at the beginning of this story? Well, it says Herod feared John. He recognized this man has some kind of authority. His teaching is true. But did he listen to him all the way? What does he turn to in his fear? Well, I would say he turns to embarrassment, cowardice, inaction. The kind of preaching that he was tolerating from John the Baptist was, was supposed to provoke change and repentance in him. But instead, he is sitting on a fence. He is keeping him in prison, not listening to anything that John the Baptist has to say. But as the story goes, 
Herodias, as we've already been told, does not like him. There's this opportune time on Herod's birthday. He has this banquet. He has all of these friends and buddies over these. You kind of think about the kind of people that can be there, can't you? And they're all there. And she sends in her daughter, which when you go back and look at the Herodian dynasty, it's actually his niece-slash-stepdaughter. It's kind of weird. And she dances in front of him. And in verse 23, he promised her an oath. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And so she goes back to her mom. Her mom asks for John the Baptist's head. And in verse 26, when she comes back to Herod, it says, Although the king was deeply distressed, because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. And the king sent for the executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. Why did he follow through with this? Is it because he was afraid of John? Because he feared John? No. He feared the embarrassment that would come if he came back on his oaths. It's really sad to think about. That Herod had surrounded himself with the kind of people that would expect him to go through with this kind of wickedness. Brethren, don't surround yourself with wicked people like this. They would expect you to go through with that. But those are the kind of influences that Herod had in his life. And he was so fearful of embarrassment that he went through with it. Another one that jumps off the pages to me is in chapter 9. We're fast-forwarding through a couple of things, but when you get to chapter 9, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration where they had met Elijah and Moses. There's the wonderful scene of the voice coming out of heaven and saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. But there were nine other apostles that were down on the bottom of that mountain. And Jesus and the other three, they get down to the bottom of the mountain, and it tells us that there's this large crowd that had formed, and he hears people arguing and shouting one thing and another at each other. And so Jesus gets down there, and in verse 17, it says someone from the crowd says, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. I want you to sympathize with this man for just a second. Imagine you live in some faraway place, or even remotely close, and you have a child like this. One of the worst demons maybe you've ever seen. And you find out that there's a teacher There's this guy over here in the region of Galilee that's able to heal and cast out demons. And so, you load up, and I'd imagine it was a struggle to load up, and you go to Jesus. Well, you find out Jesus is up here on this mountain. But his disciples, they have the ability to do this. Don't don't we remember back in chapter 3, whenever Jesus called them out, the apostles, the called out ones, he gave them the authority over the unclean spirits. And so he says, well, all is well. They're casting out demons. And so he gets in line, he brings his son up, and they can't cast out the demon. Can you imagine what that would be like for you? And if that doesn't look bad on the disciples only, who else does that look bad on? But the one that they serve. The one that's up there on that mountain. Now here's what I don't think is going on. I don't think that Jesus forgot to give them the ability to cast out this special kind of demon. I don't think that's it at all. The text doesn't seem to indicate that. In fact, when you get to the very end of this story, after all of this is wrapped up and the disciples are with Jesus in private and they say, hey, 
What about that? Why couldn't we do it? Jesus says, well, this kind can only come out by prayer. They were supposed to be praying the whole time. I think it's a little bit of a jab here. You had the ability to do this, but you started relying on your own strength. But again, put yourself in the shoes of this man. Let me ask you this. You're not only fearful at this point, but are you starting to doubt? I know I would be. If they can't solve this, then who can? I would start to feel hopeless. And I understand. I relate to that. But he keeps turning to Jesus. Because after Jesus laments this unbelieving generation, I think directed at his apostles, he says in verse 21, well, how long has this been happening to him? And from childhood, he said, and many times it's thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And in verse 25, when Jesus saw that the crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. And the boy became like a corpse, so that some said he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him up, and he stood up. And after he'd gone to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he said, This kind cannot come out but nothing but prayer. This man... I think would have had every right to just walk away. But he kept looking to Jesus. He kept looking to him. And when he was willing to look to Jesus further, he found the relief he was looking for through his fears and his doubts. Have God's people, have God's disciples ever failed you before? They failed me. Have they ever failed friends of yours, family members of yours that have walked away from the Lord altogether because God's disciples failed them? Well, then they needed to stop putting their trust in God's disciples. And they needed to start putting their trust in God. This man went further. In his doubt, he went to the source. And so as we ask at the end of this, what is he afraid of now? He's not afraid of nothing. This man has no more fear. He fears King Jesus. Look over at chapter 11. Uh, We're going to kind of do a run through here of some of the, um, I realize there's a lot of them here, but they're pretty easy to pick up on. In chapter 11, in verse 32, this is about the Pharisees. uh, Whenever they're having this discussion with Jesus about where John's baptism came from. And in verse 32, it says, but if we say of human origin, They were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. They're they're worried about people. You see the same thing in chapter 12 and verse 12 after Jesus speaks the parable of the vineyard against the Pharisees. It says that they were looking for a way to arrest him but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left and went away. And then again in chapter 14, whenever Jesus is soon to be killed. It says it was two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him, but they said not during the festival so that there won't be a riot among the people. The Pharisees feared man, what their response would be 
if they arrested Jesus. But what's fascinating to me as you look at these last few chapters of Mark's gospel, the Pharisees were not the only group of men in this story that were fearing the opinions and the reactions of men. Jesus' disciples were too. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is arrested, in chapter 14 and verse 50, it tells us that they all deserted him and ran away. Not just Peter, not just Judas, all 12 of, him, all 12 of them left. But more detail is given about Peter. And Peter doesn't say no or deny uh, to just men, but to a servant girl in verse 66. And when she saw Peter warming herself, himself in verse 67, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus, from uh, the man from Nazareth. And he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out of the entryway and a rooster crowed. He does that two more times. A lot of people are afraid of man. They're afraid of what their opinions of them will be when it comes to what their allegiance is. The disciples here, I think, anticipated a physical fight. And as Peter is there in the garden and he pulls out that sword to cut off that ear and Jesus says, put your sword away, I think Peter is left spinning and reeling. If this isn't the kind of fight that, that I thought it would be, then what, what does he want me to do? And so he runs away. He turns to hopelessness and to confusion. And what are they afraid of at the end of the story? Well, thankfully, the story doesn't end here. At them all departing him and fleeing. But the story continues into chapter 16. Whenever they see something that's impossible. Do you remember what happens at the beginning of chapter 16? After Jesus has been crucified and buried in the tomb three days later, the Sabbath is over and there's three women mentioned. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? And looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Verse 8. And they went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were what? Afraid. They were afraid. Well, what were they afraid of? I would submit to you this evening that they were afraid of the impossible. How can this be? I saw him crucified. I saw the nails go through his hands. I saw him take his last breath. I saw him get scourged. How is it possible that he could be raised from the dead? And so they're afraid. But they're not the only ones afraid. In chapter 16, 9 through 11, it describes for us that these women go out to tell the apostles about it as well. And I do want to turn out of the, uh, the Gospel of Mark just one time for the sake of this point by borrowing the language from John's Gospel. In John chapter 20, in verse uh, 19, in the same account of the resurrection, I want you to look what it says whenever Jesus goes to the house that his disciples are at. It says that when it was evening on the first day of the week, 
the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. And Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. And having said this, He showed them His hands and His side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Where they might have been afraid and scattered in Mark 14, what are they now? Amazed, because they have seen the risen Lord. They have no more fear. They have no more doubts. The Lord Jesus has been risen from the dead. And this kind of truth in the apostles' life is exactly why we see them act the way we do in the book of Acts. Why we see a boldness out of them to go and to stand before the Sanhedrin, the same one that Peter was once fearful of. He is now boldly standing in front of because he has seen the risen Christ. He has seen the impossible. His fears and doubts are gone because he had seen the risen Christ. So how do we apply this tonight? How do we bring this home and make some applications? Well, number one, are you experiencing any of these fears or doubts tonight? What's the storm in your life right now? What's going on that makes it feel like you're literally in a boat, the waves and the water is crashing in, and you're feeling overwhelmed because you don't know what to do? What is the sin in your life that makes you feel a little bit like the legion in Mark chapter 5? That no matter what you've tried or what you've turned to, you just can't seem to get rid of it because you are just so overwhelmed at the power that this sin has over you. Do you have a sickness or illness tonight that is overwhelming you and causing doubts and fears? Maybe it's not you who's experiencing the sickness or illness, but maybe it's someone you love. Maybe you're like Herod. And daily, you find yourself giving in to the embarrassment for your relationship with God, and you're compromising your heart in an effort to blend in with the world. Do you feel hopeless tonight, like that, did, that man did in chapter 9? Do you feel doubtful? Do you feel doubtful that God can repair a broken relationship? Do you feel doubtful that God can heal your broken marriage that you have yet to tell those that need to know that it's broken? Do you doubt that God can mend the broken relationship with your children or with our brother or sister in Christ? Do you doubt your fellow disciples because of a bad experience? Are you afraid of the way men see you like the Pharisees were and like the disciples were? Because if you're experiencing any of these fears or doubts tonight, the next question might be the more important one. What are you doing with them? What are you turning to when you have fear or doubt? Are you turning to others? Are you like this woman in chapter 5 that is going to doctor after doctor to, to try and find the comfort that you're only going to find in Christ? Are you the kind of person that hops from church to church, counselor to counselor, eldership to eldership, to just try to find answers instead of finally looking at the Lord have you spent all of your effort and money going to find relief in men who do not have the power to bring you comfort? Are you turning to sin, finding temporary relief? Are you turning to disciples that only disappoint? Or are you turning to yourself? Are you turning inward? Have you decided that it's up for you to just grit and bear your teeth enough until you get through your trial? It's up to you, and I find security in how much money I have in my bank account. That's where I find my relief whenever I have fears 
or doubts? Is that where your security is? Is that where you find comfort? What about hopelessness and self-pity? Is that what you're turning to? Is that not a tendency for us? I think about the words of the hymn that we just sang. My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim is higher ground. Specifically the line, my heart has no desire to stay where these fears and doubts are. Though some may dwell where these abound, I'm not going to. Is that where you're sitting at? Is in fear and doubt, self-pity, hopelessness, instead of turning to the source? Or are you someone that runs from doubt? What do you do when you doubt things? Do you ever have questions when going through trials? Why God? Why is this going? Why am I having to go through this? Why me, God? Well, what do you do with those doubts and fears when you start to feel them? What about when you doubt the teachings that you've heard your whole life? I'm sure this is true of a lot of people in here. I was very blessed and thankful that I was raised in a godly home. Um, I'm very thankful for that, always appreciative to my parents. And so as I got older and older, I started to question things, and I started to find answers, and I was really thankful for that. But I also had a lot of friends who started to question the things that they were taught. And there's nothing in and of itself wrong with that. I would encourage you. If you have questions, great. But for every one of my friends that eventually left the Lord, and I finally got to have that sit-down conversation with them, You know what they all have in common? They say to me, well, you know, Chase, I had been having these doubts for a while. Well, how long? Months or years, they normally say. You know what my follow-up question always is? Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you take these questions and these doubts to the source? Because I think at the end of the day, they didn't want to. They wanted to come to the conclusions that they already had made. They didn't go to the source. Are we guilty of that? Are we bad about that? Each of them were unwilling to turn to the impossible. Brothers and sisters, when we face fear and doubt, we must turn to the one who can make the impossible possible. We must turn to the risen Christ the same way the disciples did. The one who defeated death, the one who defeated sin, and the one who was able to crush the serpent beneath his heel. The same one, Jesus, who said, with God, all things are possible. That's who we turn to when we have fears or doubts. And if you want to have what seems like an impossible thing to happen in your circumstances and in your life, then you need to be willing to turn to Jesus. Because as the end of this line says, My prayer, my aim, is higher ground. Seek the high ground when you are afraid. That is where God delivers from. The disciples learned that lesson. Thankfully, it wasn't too late for them. Thankfully, only Judas was the one who departed. But the apostles went to Jesus. They found comfort in his risen state. And that is what propelled them forward in a life full of uncertainties, in a life full of persecutions, was because they served the living or the risen Christ. And we do too, brethren. Isn't that an amazing thing? Go to him for your fears and doubts. 
I've saved a third point that we're going to look at for the invitation. And so I appreciate your all's kind attention. We'll go ahead and we'll wrap up there. Thank you all.